Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Please, I need your help. That's my new career. Huh? It's very... Lady. Lady. Half a year's work just flew south for the winter, all right? My Jeep is totaled. In about five minutes, everything I own in the world is going to be wet. So can you lighten up, please? I really don't have the time. I'll pay you. You don't understand. It's a matter of life and death. If I don't get to How my How much? Sister... $50? <laughs> well, you, you said you just lost everything you owned. Not my sense of humor. Well, I'll pay you $100. $200. I'll do it. Five. What? I'll pay you $250. Now, I ain't cheap, but I can't be had. My minimum price for taking a stranded woman to a telephone is $400. Will you take $375 in traveler's checks? American Express? Of course. Not a deal. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 160, Romancing the Stone and the Jewel of the Nile. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, thank you so much for being here and a huge hi welcome to you all listening. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener or indeed an irregular returning listener, thank you so much for choosing Verbal Diorama. Especially for this episode, because it's really great that you're here for this episode on Romancing the Stone and the Jewel of the Nile. Now, this is technically a bonus episode. I don't normally release episodes on Mondays. But what this is, is this is a Nanorama episode. And what that means is I like to do these episodes that are slightly shorter. They're more kind of focused on general tidbits of information and interesting stories. And they're also the movies that honestly you're probably never going to get. 
a full episode of Verbal Diorama, because Verbal Diorama episodes are normally just one movie. But then there's the odd occasion where I think, these two movies really need an episode, but they don't need a full one, so I'm going to give them a smaller one, and I'm going to put both of them in there. So these are basically the movies that still deserve a mention, and they still have a really interesting history and legacy to them. But this is more of like an honourable mentions section. And really, Romancing the Stone and The Jewel of the Nile are genuinely two of the most brilliantly fun action-adventure romantic comedies of the 80s. I'm especially fond of Romancing the Stone. Uh, This is actually one of my mum's favourite movies as well. So if she is listening, I know she'll be very excited to hear that I'm doing an episode on one of her favourite films. And to be honest, I feel like not enough podcasts talk about either of these movies, but especially Romancing the Stone, because that is genuinely my preference out of the two movies. But I really wanted to do an episode on both of them because there's some really interesting stuff behind both of these movies, and especially The Jewel of the Nile, that I think is really interesting and really bears repeating as well, if you don't know the stories behind these movies. But I'm just going to jump straight in and we're going to start with, of course, 1984's Romancing the Stone. Here's trailer. I'm getting out of this jungle dump. I'm fed up to here with this treasure hunt business. Yeah. Ira, you miserable worm, you lied to me. You said she was a city girl. Out of her element. Just get her in the map and bring them back. Piece of cake. Piece of cake, my butt. What went wrong? I'll tell you what went wrong. First of all, guess who else is here? You're dead right, Solo. What? Secondly, she's got herself a partner. Like shooting holes and everything. The minimum price for taking a stranded woman to a telephone is $400. 375 in traveler's checks? Not a deal. That's just the beginning of what's going on down here. Joan Wilder, a mousy romance novelist, receives a treasure map in the mail from her recently murdered brother-in-law. Her sister Elaine has been kidnapped in Colombia, and the two criminals responsible demand that she travel to Colombia to exchange the map for her sister. Joan arrives in Colombia and quickly becomes lost in the jungle after being waylaid by Solo, a corrupt Colombian cop, who will stop at nothing to obtain the map. She happens upon irreverent soldier of fortune Jack Colton, who agrees to bring her back to civilization? Together they embark upon an adventure that could be straight out of one of Joan's novels. We'll quickly run through the cast of this movie as always. Michael Douglas as Jack Colton. Kathleen Turner as Joan Wilder. Danny DeVito as Ralph. Zach Norman as Ira. Alfonso Arau as Juan. Manuel Oyeda as Colonel Zolo. Holland Taylor as Gloria Horn and Mary Ellen Trainer as Elaine Wilder. 
Romancing the Stone was written by Diane Thomas and directed by Robert Zemeckis. And I normally like to start at the beginning of the story, but for this I'm going to start at the end of the story because Romancing the Stone was always planned to be a huge flop. Studio insiders had zero faith in the movie. They even fired Robert Zemeckis from Cocoon because they thought Romancing the Stone was going to be such a misfire. But it would actually go on to become the eighth biggest movie of 1984 in the US. Robert Zemeckis has stated that the success of Romancing the Stone allowed him to go on to make Back to the Future. And so really, we all have a lot more to be thankful to Romancing the Stone for than we actually realise. But why was Romancing the Stone seen as going to be a dud? Well, sexism in 1980s Hollywood probably plays a part because the story starts with a young female writer by the name of Diane Thomas. Thomas was working as a waitress on the Pacific Coast Highway in California in 1978. And in her spare time, she was writing a script called Romancing the Stone. She'd studied acting but took a waitress job to make ends meet while writing her screenplay in her spare time. Once the script was finished, her agent Norman Curland was so impressed with it, he sent it to several major studios. It took less than a week for Columbia Pictures, as well as producer Michael Douglas, to buy the script for Romancing the Stone for $250,000. Columbia wouldn't end up making the movie, but 20th Century Fox would, with Michael Douglas still in the producer's seat. Douglas, as the son of Kirk Douglas, was primarily known as an actor, but he also produced One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975 after his father gave him the rights to the novel. That movie would go on to win a Best Picture Academy Award, so Douglas had a remarkable amount of clout to get Romancing the Stone made, and starring in the movie would also make his star rise even further. Also joining the project was Robert Zemeckis, now known as one of the greatest directors of all time, but back then he only had two films to his name, 1978's I Want to Hold Your Hand and 1980's Used Cars. Both were flops, but 20th Century Fox, who had taken over the project from Columbia, noticed his talent, as did Douglas. And Douglas wanted the energy of used cars to be in Romancing the Stone. And Michael Douglas was criticised for paying Diane Thomas so much for her first script. But he was insistent. He loved the material and he felt it was worth the price. And because this was a script written by a woman, the character of Joan Wilder was the focal point of the movie. Romancing the Stone is angled from Joan's perspective, and so while Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman and Burt Reynolds were all initially considered, and Sylvester Stallone was offered the part of Jack Colton but turned it down, Michael Douglas would end up casting himself as suave action ladies man Jack Colton, Bob Hoskins turned down the part of the role of Ralph, Douglas went to his old roommate Danny DeVito and offered him the part instead. But ultimately, this project, because it was so focused on Joan Wilder, needed to find the perfect Joan. And so they went ahead and they cast Deborah Winger. And at the time, she was method acting for a role as a terminally ill woman in terms of endearment, and she was living in a hospital at the time. Michael Douglas took Deborah Winger out for dinner to discuss the movie. They had a couple of drinks together, and as they were leaving, Deborah Winger bit Michael Douglas on the arm in a jokey manner. I don't know how that could be jokey, but Douglas insists it was jokey. But the aftermath of that was that he didn't feel too comfortable having Deborah Winger star alongside him. And so let's just say she was no longer cast as Joan anymore. They went on the hunt again and then they came across Kathleen Turner. 
Turner's star-making debut was as a femme fatale in the 1981 erotic noir Body Heat, and she didn't want to be typecast as a femme fatale, so she took a role in 1983's The Man with Two Brains, a Steve Martin comedy, that proved that she could be both funny and sexy. For Romancing the Stone, they needed someone who could be demure and insecure, and also willing to get muddy. It would turn out that Turner was more than game to get down and dirty, although the making of Romancing the Stone did not come particularly easy for anyone involved. I'm just going to get it out of the way. CG did not exist in 1984, so everything in this movie is completely practical. The production was plagued by rain, mud and creepy crawlies when it was shot on location in the jungles of Veracruz and Hidalgo in Mexico, and it was mainly shot in Mexico due to issues with filming in Colombia. Naturally, all of the action and stunt scenes were performed live, it was so exhausting that Robert Zemeckis asked his agent, Jack Rapke, that if another script ever came across his desk that had a slug line stating exterior, jungle, night, rain, it was never to be sent to him for consideration. Director of photography, Dean Cundy, who'd go on to work with Zemeckis on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, set up a mudslide sequence for Douglas and Turner. The rain was pouring down at the time. And little did they realise an actual mudslide was occurring just behind them. The cliff face ended up on the road and luckily no one was in the vicinity. That didn't mean the production wasn't beset with injuries though. The mudslide stunt gave Kathleen Turner a cut needing several stitches and then there were the alligators. Not only did Kathleen Turner have to step on the heads of live alligators in a scene that would end up getting cut, the alligators used in the production would routinely have their jaws wired shut. But that didn't mean that they weren't prone to attack. When Michael Douglas grabbed the tail of an alligator who's eaten the titular stone, the animal reacted by whacking him in the face twice. The alligator also tried to escape and they had to go on the hunt for it. Basically, during a night shoot in the dark, murky waters. What they didn't know at the time was the wires on the alligator's jaws had become loose and the creature had managed to get the wires off. The trainers dove into the water to retrieve the alligator, but the gator had other ideas. And instead, he ended up grabbing one of the trainer's hands, spinning him and taking him underwater. Luckily, the other trainer managed to dive under and set his colleague free by wedging the alligator's mouth open to free his hand. In a remarkable turn of events, they managed to get the injured trainer to the hospital in time to save his life. He'd lost a lot of blood and his hand was mauled up. The trainer, though, his only thought was for his lost Rolex. And interestingly, the watch had coincidentally saved his life because the alligator couldn't bite through the Rolex on his wrist and therefore couldn't injure the trainer more than it actually did injure the trainer. They ended up going back to the location where the accident happened. They dove into the water and they found the trainer's Rolex. No one knows what happened to this Rolex or whether this Rolex was working. Presumably it was not working. It's really interesting that essentially a Rolex saved that man's life. Once the film's production was finished, Fox Studios were incredibly concerned about the movie. So much so, they were pretty certain it was going to bomb. And this was exacerbated when the first cut did poorly with preview audiences. And this is where Cocoon comes into the equation. Zemeckis would say, quote, What happened was, for some reason, the guy who was head of physical production of Fox at the time he had it out for our movie. While we were down in Mexico shooting, we found out later he was spewing all this vitriol about how we were out of control and this director doesn't know what he's doing. 
The cocoon producers, Zemeckis would add, were hearing all of this stuff constantly coming out of Mexico. They got nervous, so they fired me. After they saw the movie, they wanted to hire me back on Cocoon. I just sort of kind of politely declined after that. Romancing the Stone, though, seemed to be in trouble after that screening. Zemeckis made significant revisions because he knew the movie could be rescued. The movie was cut and much of the content that followed the finding of the crashed jet was removed. New scenes that mostly involved the prologue and epilogue and focused on Joan's need to find a good man were written and filmed, along with Joan having a cat that she loved as well. Gloria, who served as Joan's editor, took her to a bar, encouraged her to date and supported her love aspirations, replacing the original scenes of Joan with a male publisher. Another significant change was the reshoot of the sequence where Joan and Jack first meet in the wreckage of the plane. Between the outside and inside studio shots of the plane, which were shot five months apart, Joan and Jack's looks change with Douglas clearly looking different in the two shots. Despite all of the issues, Romancing the Stone would charm audiences and go on to become a huge hit when it was released on the 30th of March 1984, making over $115 million worldwide on its $10 million budget and being a huge hit with critics too. It would be unfavourably compared to Raves of the Lost Ark, but really, they're incomparable as far as I'm concerned. Not only did it frame the narrative in the perspective of Joan, it gave her agency and drive. She is still the damsel in distress, but Romancing the Stone also sends up the tropes, such as Colombian drug lord Juan actually being a fan of Joan Wilder's books. Joan never needs the man, she wants the man, and after everything, he wants her too. And so did audiences, because when you have a huge hit like Romancing the Stone, you're almost always called upon to make a sequel. And so we move to a sequel made in super quick time to capitalise, but one that contains tragedy, lawsuits, and unfortunately seemed to kill the franchise before it ever really started. And that's 1985's The Jewel of the Nile. long months of dreamlike sunsets, seductive cocktails and endless travels around the globe on their yacht, Jack Colton and Joan Wilder are finally starting to get bored with their stagnant relationship and the easy life. However, life will soon go back into the fast lane when a polite but insistent invitation by charming Arab ruler Omar Khalifa 
involves Joan in a new adventure in the Nile, hot on the trail of yet another mythical gemstone. Is this elusive jewel of the Nile the missing ingredient in Jack and Joan's love life? And obviously, we're going to be talking about returning cast members, but we do have a lot of returning cast members in this movie. Michael Douglas returns as Jack Colton. Kathleen Turner returns as Joan Wilder. Danny DeVito returns as Ralph. And new cast members include Spiros Focus as Omar Khalifa, Avner Eisenberg as Al Jahara, Hamid Filali as Rashid, and returning cast member Holland Taylor as Gloria Horn. The Jewel of the Nile was written by Mark Rosenthal and Lawrence Connor and directed by Louis Teague. And when Romancing the Stone was made, contractual obligations were put in place should any sequels be made, as is tradition with all Hollywood productions. At the time, because the movie was seen as probably going to flop, no one really saw a sequel coming. But it did, and it came super quick too. And this posed a problem for Kathleen Turner, whose star had risen considerably due to the success of Romancing the Stone. She had multiple offers for other movies, but with the studio pressing ahead with a sequel that she was contractually obligated to, she had little choice, despite her affection for and great working relationship with Michael Douglas. Writer Diane Thomas, her star had risen too. She was off working on other things, including with Steven Spielberg on the movie Always. She therefore wasn't available to write the sequel to Romancing the Stone. Enlisted instead were Mark Rosenthal and Lawrence Connor, who would go on to write Star Trek VI and Superman IV. Also unavailable was Robert Zemeckis. He was off working on Back to the Future, and he wasn't contractually obligated to return, and so he didn't. Danny DeVito was more than happy to return, though, despite his character Ralph's appearance being a literal coincidence to end all coincidences. Fox wanted an 18-month turnaround for the sequel and hired Louis Teague to fill the director's chair. But the issues with The Jewel of the Nile were really only just beginning. Kathleen Turner, frankly, didn't want to do the movie. She thought the script was bad, and she ended up hiring attorney Roy Cohn as Fox threatened to sue her for $25 million breach of contract if she didn't participate. She would end up begrudgingly accepting to star in the movie after Michael Douglas intervened and agreed to further rewrites of the script. In an interview with Vulture, Turner would say, quote, What had happened was that romancing was so successful that Diane Thomas, who wrote the original script, evidently asked Michael for what he felt was a ridiculous sum to work on the sequel. So instead, he went with these two guys, and what they came up with was terrible, formulaic, sentimental. Anyway, I said no. Then I found out I was being sued for $25 million for breach of contract. My position was that yes, I signed up for a sequel, but I didn't sign up to compromise the quality of my work. On a pre-production trip to Morocco to scout for locations, approximately two weeks before filming on The Jewel of the Nile was due to start, the first of several tragedies occurred, as production designer Richard Dawking and production manager Brian Coates, along with four other crew members, were killed after their plane crashed in the Moroccan countryside. With a huge hit like Romancing the Stone on their hands, Fox executives were very keen to make The Jewel of the Nile at least as ambitious in scale, but were also willing to up the budget accordingly. Filming started in April 1985 on location in France, Morocco and the US on a budget of $21 million, over double its predecessor. But the filming was hampered by the scorching heat in Morocco, reportedly reaching 120 degrees Fahrenheit, 
that's 48 degrees Celsius, by the way, as well as customs officials refusing entry to certain pieces of equipment. Reportedly, several bribes had to be paid in order to get the equipment into the country. Back to Kathleen Turner, though. She was still not very pleased about being forced to star in a movie with a script that she really didn't like. She wasn't happy that Diane Thomas wasn't on board to pet the sequel. Turner did have script approval as part of her contract and she invoked that right while flying to Morocco. Tragedy almost struck again as the wing of the private plane that she and Douglas were flying in ended up hitting the runway on their landing in Morocco, but thankfully no one was hurt. She would end up negotiating scenes in the script on a hotel floor with Michael Douglas in Morocco to get a version of this script that she was happier with. Director Louis Teague wasn't a big budget movie director and he struggled with the weight of expectation for the movie and the strenuous schedule. And mistakes started being made. A big night shoot was planned, it took hours to set up, filming started and the scene was complete, only to realise there was actually no film in the camera. This infuriated Michael Douglas, who was obviously under extreme pressure as a producer to get this film done. The scene had to be reshot another day, and they made sure that there was film in the camera that time. The filming in Morocco was also beset with illness, with crew becoming sick just before they were due to fly to France. The Moroccan Health Service suspected cases of hepatitis and ended up quarantining the whole production for a further six weeks at a cost of reportedly $2.5 million. Luckily for the jewel in the Nile, it would only end up just three weeks over schedule in the end, which seemed miraculous given all the issues filming had presented. Filming wrapped in July 1985, and the movie went into post-production set to release in December 1985. It's not the end of the tragedy, though. Diane Thomas had celebrated her sale of Romancing the Stone script by buying herself her dream car, a Porsche Carrera. Six weeks before The Jewel of the Nile premiered on the 21st of October 1985, Thomas, her boyfriend, actor Stephen Norman, and friend Ian Young went out for drinks. As Norman was the least drunk, he agreed to drive the Porsche home. The car was travelling at about 80 miles an hour when it crashed off the road, hit an electricity pole on the Pacific Coast Highway. Ironically, the same road where Thomas's dreams had literally begun. Diane Thomas died instantly. Ian Young died two hours after arriving at hospital. Stephen Norman was arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol, but it seems like he was never charged. At the time of Diane Thomas's death, she was also working on a script for the third Indiana Jones film, Reportedly set in a haunted mansion, the UCLA Extension Writers Programme established the Diane Thomas Screenwriting Awards in her memory after she passed away. Randy Mayhem Singer, who later wrote Mrs Doubtfire, is one of the winners of this award. When The Jewel of the Nile was eventually released in December 1985, it would go on to make $96 million, only a little less than the first movie, but critically it wasn't as well received, although... Romancing the Stone was a huge critical success, so that would have been quite tough to achieve that. The planned sequel to The Jewel of the Nile, titled The Crimson Eagle, where Jack and Joan take their teenage children on an adventure to Thailand, never materialised, and neither would another attempt at a sequel called Racing the Monsoon, or a Gerard Butler and Catherine Heigl reboot, which I'm really honestly very pleased about. Douglas, Turner and DeVito would reunite instead for a completely different project, The War of the Roses, a TV reboot of Romancing the Stone was considered, but the closest we would get to a remake slash reboot would probably be the Sandra Bullock-Channing Tatum adventure comedy The Lost City, 
which I've actually not yet seen, but I'm really excited to see it because it feels very Romancing the Stone to me. And honestly, anything that's very Romancing the Stone really, really appeals. So I've heard some really great things about that movie and I'm really excited to see it. Both the novelizations of Romancing the Stone and The Jewel of the Nile, they were credited as being written by Joan Wilder, the character played by Kathleen Turner. Both books were actually ghostwritten, though, by a lady called Catherine Lanigan. But it makes complete sense that the novelizations of the novel of the movie were written by the novelist in the movie. And I just really love that they did that. Both of these movies are also available on Disney+. And honestly, both are so worth a Saturday afternoon watch with the family, especially Romancing the Stone. Honestly, The Jewel of the Nile doesn't quite hold up so well. It has some problematic depictions of Middle Eastern culture and doesn't quite feel as fresh, but the production's issues off-screen definitely don't appear on-screen because the core trio of Douglas Turner and DeVito are pretty much constantly great. Really, though, when the going gets tough, the lasting legacy of The Jewel of the Nile is possibly the absolute banger of a theme song by Billy Ocean, the music video of which would star Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner and Danny DeVito. The song would be a huge hit in the UK and in the US. But interestingly, the video was banned by the BBC. It wasn't shown on Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops was a huge music show on the BBC. And basically, anything that was shown on Top of the Pops was seen as the biggest music of the time. But because the cast of the movie, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner and Danny DeVito, were not part of the musicians' union, the video broke the rules of Top of the Pops, and so the video was banned from being shown. And I've got something to tell you. I've got something to say. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Romancing the Stone and the Jewel of the Nile. And I'd also like to hear your thoughts on the Nanorama format, whether you like it, whether you dislike it, whether you prefer longer episodes, whether you like shorter episodes. Let me know what you think. The next episode is going to be the main episode, the main Big Thursday episode of the podcast. And it's going to be out as this is being released on the Monday. The next episode is Enchanted, which is due out this Thursday. So please check out my episode on Enchanted. It's a lot of fun and I'm super proud of that episode. And it's such a wonderful, fun movie. And sometimes that's all you need when you watch movies. It's just to sit and watch and enjoy and be taken away to this other land and just enjoy it. And I feel like Romancing the Stone and The Jewel of the Nile do that. And I find Enchanted does that as well. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to help this podcast to be noticed by other people. You can tell your friends and family, especially if they like Romancing the Stone and The Jewel of the Nile. There are literally 159 other episodes of this podcast that they might enjoy. If you have enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. And you can also follow me on social media. I'm at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and Letterboxd. And you can also find posts on there. You can retweet and like posts. And that would be amazing. You can also talk to me about any of the movies that I feature as well. You can also get in touch by email. It's verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Or you can go to my website, verbaldiorama.com, and you can say hi over there. As always, a huge thank you to the patrons. I normally do list patrons in main episodes, but these episodes are short, so I'm not going to list all of the patrons. But just know that I'm really grateful to the wonderful 29 patrons currently of Verbal Diorama. Thank you so much to them. And if you want to join them and you want to help support this podcast financially, you can do so. It's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And finally, 
when the going gets tough. The tough get going, going, going. going.